It is a privilege for us to have Matt Storer and Ernie Taylor here with us. It's one of the newer ministries that we have uh, taken on as part of our ministry support. And uh, the more I hear about it, the more excited I am about it, the, 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 the impact that they're having in parts of the world and going to be having as they continue to develop uh, their way of doing ministry, if you would. And anything I say that's wrong, you guys get a chance to correct it. But uh, it's exciting. Um, Ernie's been involved. They've both been involved in ministry for quite some time. Uh, Ernie seems to have a few years on Matt. So <clears throat> experiences. So I'm going to let them share whatever they want to share for the next three hours. And then we're going to break <laughs> and come back. Okay, with that, I just want to welcome Ernie. I believe you're up first, right? Or well, I lied. Matt, yeah, you're I, up first. All right. I switched it. Well, good morning. We are so excited to be here, part of this church today, and appreciate your support and prayers. Um, uh, before I, I jump into today's topic, I, I wanted to share a little bit about my family. I have a picture up here of them. And uh, I'm in the middle there, the young guy. And my wife's uh, to my, let's see, what, to my right. And uh, I met her at Taylor University in the late 80s and fell in love with her. And she's Ernie's oldest daughter. So um, if you want a <laughs> family working relationship, I always say go to work with your father-in-law. It's very exciting. Uh, but we've been married about 28 years and have four children um, the oldest got married January 1st, that's Sophie, she's all the way there on the left. And then my third daughter, she's uh, 21, she had a baby a couple years ago, she's in university and going to be married next summer. And then the girl to the other side of my wife, um, she's 22, got married this summer. So if you're paying attention to all these facts, yes, I've graduated two in the last couple years, and yes, I married two of them. Financially, I'm over the hurdle. <laughs> Only one more or two more colleges and one more marriage. So my son there, he's 18. He's still in high school. Um, I just praise God for this family. We've had our ups and downs, but by his grace and his love and mercy on us, we all love Jesus, and we are trying to live that out, and uh, I can't thank him enough. I spent 14 years in the IT industry uh, from 1991 to 2004, so a lot of consulting and business. Eight of that was with Microsoft Corporation. I left there in 2004. I was called into ministry to work with Ernie. Uh, I had been serving on the board of his ministry before that, and the Lord just put a burden on my wife and I uh, to leave the marketplace and go full-time. And uh, so one of my biggest accomplishments in life is uh, being Ernie's son-in-law. Son How about that? Uh, we live in Colorado Springs and have been there the last 14 years and just love the outdoors. But today I wanted to talk with you a little bit about uh, international missions, kind of two parts. Okay, The first part is simply what's going on in the world with international missions. Where's the need? Where's the opportunity? Where are the challenges? The second part of my uh, sharing this morning is going to be, so what are we doing about it? What is Child Development International doing in response. So um, before I get started, anybody ever watch TV? 
Okay, I'm, I'm a sucker. I do watch a little TV, little HGTV, Food Network, no drama. It's over in a half hour. But uh, you see the commercial on there for Overstock.com? Anyone? Yeah, what's Overstock been doing lately? We don't just sell Overstock goods. Don't believe our name. We sell new things and things, you know, it's like, okay, you got to rebrand yourself. Well, Child Development International, I want to start up front. We are about children, but the primary reason we were created was for evangelism and discipleship. We want to engage the kids around the world that need help, but really we want to help the local Christian community engage communities that are not open to the gospel by first building relationship and trust with that community. And the way they can do it is we teach these Christians around the world to go into the community and help the community help their children. Help their children with their health, their education. And as the Christians are doing that, they're creating relationship. That relationship leads to trusting them. And Lord willing, in these difficult places around the world that's not open to Christianity, through the trust that's created, they're more open to hearing the gospel. So Child Development International is all about the gospel. But we use the idea of connecting and helping children to make that bridge. Does that make sense? All right, so today, my talk is over. <laughs> but I really want to focus in on here this scripture, Acts 1.8. Make sure it's up on the slide there. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So what the ends of the earth? Really, right? Is there a good definition for that? Can you sum that up in a sentence? I cannot. I've been working globally in 17, 20 different countries. Um, it's a challenge. However, I do have some stats for you and some information that might open our eyes to what it could be. So this next slide comes from my Microsoft days. I apologize. So anybody from corporate, you know, or you work in the management side of the business around here, in agriculture or whatever it is, you're going to be familiar with slides like these. Otherwise, I'm sorry. <laughs> Global major religions, annual growth rates. On the right, you see Christianity at 1.2%. It's the green bar. And next to it is the blue, or dark blue, 1.9%. That's Islam. The other two religions represented up there are Hinduism and Buddhism. They are also going at 1.2%, the same as Christianity. Now, this is global annual growth rate. The red column is population growth, which is about 1.2%. And so what's interesting here is as the population grows, Christianity is growing along with it, but so is Buddhism and Hinduism. Who's outpacing us? Islam. Now, another way to look at these statistics are um, as a percent of total population. Who is a Christian? Who is not a Christian? What are other faiths? And where are they geographically in the world? So I have a couple slides here to help us understand uh, this, this viewpoint. Did I go the wrong direction? I did. So with peoples of the world, evangelicals, born-again believers, represent about 
oh, let's say uh, 10% of the population, okay? But if you include all people that identify themselves as Christian, we are upwards of about 33% of the world's population. Are you tracking with me? Now, what's interesting is if we break it down by geographic, ge geography, we've got where are these Christians living? And so you see here in uh, India, very small percent of Christians are represented on the graph. Muslim-majority countries, uh, a little bit more. Other Asian countries, small. China, very small. Non-Muslim Africa, Europe, North America, and Latin America are much bigger, right? So all the gray space are basically uh, the non-Christians living in those ge geographies. And the reason I share this slide with you is to begin to look at well, what do we do about the non-Christian space and where are they located? So this particular slide with the blue-green um, begins to represent a slice of the non-Christian community. We can look at the non-Christian community left and divide it into two. So 50% of the non-Christian uh, non believers are represented up here in this color of greenish-blue. They are what we call reached. They know somebody who's a Christian, or they have access to churches. They are culturally near Christians, okay? So about 50% of all the non-believers in the world would be, uh, the word we're using here, are culturally near non-believers. So if we're Christians and we want to do outreach programs, we have access to those people naturally. We know people. There are churches. But this next slide here with the dark blue, make sure I'm on the right one, is the other 50% of those non-believers. They are not near Christians. They don't know a Christian. They don't have access to it. And so again, about if you take all of the non-Christians in the world, you can almost separate it 50-50. 50% of them can connect or have an opportunity to hear the gospel because of relationship with people or church. The other 50% really don't have access or opportunity. That's significant. Um, and I think now when we start to ask the question, where are the ends of the earth, we might get a feel for it. I read this statistic and I was a little bit shocked. I'm in the mission field myself. But when I looked at this, it says here about for every 30 missionaries sent out to basically the reached group, there's only one sent out to the unreached group. Does that make sense to you? There's a need for for missionaries in the whole space. There's a need for us to be on mission as Christians in the whole space, but the professionals who are being trained and who are being sent out, it's about 30 to 1. My, so Ernie and I are like, what can we do about this? Uh, you know, how do we get more people connected to these unreached groups? Because there's a huge need, and I think that is the ends of the earth. Those are the people that are the most difficult to reach. So we have a few challenges we've identified. Challenge number one, it's extremely difficult to reach the unreached. Question for you, 
Oh, I got the answer up there. That's supposed to, that's supposed to be a build slide. I failed in PowerPoint 101 when I was at Microsoft. Yes. Okay, pretend like you don't see the 81%. What percent of the world's Hindu, Muslims, and Buddhists do not know a Christ follower? So one we were talking about, of all the non-believers, it's 50-50, you know, like 50% would know a Christ follower or know of a church or maybe have heard something. But this is specifically honing in on these three religious groups. 81%, yes, you got it right. You guys are amazing. 81% do not know a Christ follower. It just kind of blows my mind. That's significant because they represent quite a large population in the, in the, in the world. Challenge number two, dramatic increase in persecution. You've probably heard this. Maybe you follow it in the news. But it's true. Um, you know, you'd think in the era of, of globalization and better communication and supposedly we all behave better, it's not really happening, is it? Uh, the world is sinful and it's challenging. And actually, the persecution was reported one of the worst years in the modern history of Christianity in 2015. The president of Open Doors International said, the level of exclusion, discrimination, and violence against Christians is unprecedented. It's spreading, and it's intensifying. And this is sobering information. And so we go back to that 30 to 1 ratio, and we wonder why is it so difficult to reach the unreached? There's a couple things going on here. The unreached don't really want to be reached, do they? In fact, they're aggressively working to prevent hearing the gospel. Now, this brings up a story um, that comes to mind here. The gentleman standing next to me in the dark blue shirt uh, his name is Pastor Joseph. He is a pastor in northern Vietnam. And I don't know if you know much about Vietnam, but there's generally a southern and a northern. And in the north today, still, the communist uh, party and the interest is very high, and they're concerned about western connectedness. Uh, they're kind of paranoid. And so having the idea of Christianity come into their communities is a direct connection to Westernism. And so if you identify yourself as a Christian, you essentially are sort of a threat. Now this is all misinformation and not necessarily accurate, but that's the perception that they have. And so for you to be a Christian in this particular area, it's not in every area, but in the majority of northern Vietnam, it is a problem. There is persecution. This pastor here has organized about 30 house church leaders throughout northern Vietnam. These house church leaders, Ernie and I were interviewing some of them to learn about their story. I'm not calling them pastors because they're not. They went off when they were younger to different countries, for example, to work. Um, most of them, the common story was they went to Malaysia as construction workers. That's how they get their cheap labor in Malaysia. And while they were overseas working, they got saved. There was some ministry that was going to these construction workers and inviting them to church and sharing the gospel with them. The ones that got saved, if you could believe it, came back after their three-year tour of work 
or whatever the number of years were, came back to their original village as a Christian and many times the Christian, the only Christian. Now remember, persecution or really paranoia is common in these communities. So for you to say, I'm a Christian, uh, all of a sudden you're a target. And so let's say this Christian didn't even go out into the community to begin to witness, but when they didn't show up for this festival and that festival, and they didn't participate in ancestral worship, pretty soon you're discovered that you're a Christ follower. And some of the stories we heard were you're being jailed, you lose your job, or your sister, who's not even a Christian, but she's your sister, gets penalized and loses her job, or you get beaten, etc. The stories were quite shocking. What Pastor Joseph has been doing is organizing these men and women, bringing them into Hanoi, and once a month teaching them and slowly training them to be a pastor, if you will, to be a house church leader, have the faith, have the courage, and the knowledge to begin to try to evangelize in their communities. So I share this story with you because, one, it's difficult, but two, um, wow, it's super hard to break through a community that's paranoid and doesn't want to hear the gospel. The third challenge is a global lack of training. And I mentioned it with Pastor Joseph. If it wasn't him, who would be teaching these guys? You know, I mean, praise God that God's called him to bring them together. But 95%, they say, lack formal training in theological matters. Now imagine how much they lack in making friends, how much training they lack in making friends and operating and trying to connect with people. So there's a huge need for training out there. I guess to show you a different perspective, um, I'll paint a picture for you. Let's say you have a new neighbor, all right? And your neighbor built a Hindu temple on the corner of your street that you live. There was a couple acres there, and up goes the Hindu temple. And you're like, that's, that's fine. I really don't know what they do. Um, it's America. They can build it. And then, a year later, it's a grand opening. And you get a postcard. And it says, come to our celebration. We're going to have a party for the kids. We're going to do an overnight with the kids. And we're going to have a celebration. There's going to be sporting get events and all kind of fun things. Now, what's going through your mind? Hmm? Pretty good deal. So so these Hindu temple folks are inviting your kids to come spend time with them. Do you trust them? Now, we we trust them as a person, but we don't trust them because you could see they want to convert us to their religion or expose us to their religion, right? So right away, your little trust factor is pretty high. You're like, "Uh, I'm not going to send my kids over there. I don't know what they're doing. I don't want anything to do with it. Well, now think about Pastor Joseph and his guys and gals. They're in these remote territories as the Christian trying to invite people to their church. When everyone else in the community culturally Buddhist, what I mean by culturally is, one, they believe their religion, but also they've associated themselves. Ernie and I do a lot of work in Myanmar. It used to be called Burma. 
And there they have a saying, to be Burmese is to be Buddhist. And to be Buddhist is to be Burmese. Isn't that quite typical, though? Like, if you're in a Christian community here in the U.S., or definitely in the 50s and 60s in the U.S., we were considered a Christian nation, right? And so these are some of the problems and challenges that our friends trying to reach the unreached face. This is why CDI was started. Um, We wanted to focus in where maybe... Remember the 30 to 1? We're like, if we're going to go do our work, if we're going to spend energy, let's go where the need is, where the opportunity is, and where the challenges are. And the second was, we know God is raising up indigenous people to reach these groups. How can we better equip them and help them be more successful? How do we help accelerate their ability? So rather than 20 years of living in that village trying to share the gospel, maybe there's a way we could accelerate their work somehow and encourage them, and through accelerating their work, they're reaching more people for Christ. So the next step for Ernie and I was to start Child Development International. And I'd like to invite Ernie to come up here and share. Uh, He's going to need the the handheld. Um, What I want him to share about is a story that in our prior work, we did a lot of heavy lifting. We ran programs that required a lot of money every month to pay for kids' school fees and for their health and discipleship, a lot of staff. We had over 1,000 people working globally with over nearly 20,000 kids. And the ministry was very successful in in making progress, but it was very, very expensive. Every time we wanted to go start a new program and bring the gospel, we had to make sure we had the money before we could start a new program. And one of my problems, we were sharing this with Pastor Mike last night, one of my challenges was, gee whiz, we're doing great in this village, and five more villages wanted us to go, but we're like, we can't go, we don't have any money to help you. I'm like, what, we're not going to bring the gospel? Because we don't have money, we could do better. Um, But I asked Ernie to share a story from our previous work that really opened our eyes on how we could leverage our knowledge of helping children and bring the gospel to unreached people groups. So Ernie, you can share. Thank you. It's a joy to be here this morning. And Lydia, I want you to know I am fine. (laughs) I am praising the Lord this morning for being here. There was a phenomenal time of worship and prayer uh, and singing and rejoicing because our Savior is here. And uh, the Holy Spirit infills this place and infills us and me. And I'm excited Uh, to be a part of uh, our worship here together with you this morning. We are so grateful what you've done to assist our ministry. In fact, not even knowing us in a sense, never having met us, uh, you have gone out of your way to make real ministry happen in the places that Matt has talked about. Well, I need to tell you just a little bit about myself. I was born at a very young age. Uh, Actually, I was born in a hospital because I wanted to be near my mother, and that was in Canada, Uh, and I lived there for uh, about 17 or 18 years, and then I went to university uh, in the United States, so I've almost been civilized now, and my life has been changed uh, by living in this wonderful country. 
Uh, I had to live here for over 20 years before I became a citizen, and uh, that's very, very important because I became a citizen of heaven when I was only nine years of age. I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior at a vacation Bible school, and life changed for me very little. I went to Sunday school because there was a little Baptist church down the corner of my street and uh, didn't do much else until I got in high school and I got involved with Youth for Christ, and all of a sudden, the Lord became very, very important in my life. And I met other teenagers, high school students who loved the Lord even more than I did. And uh, God used all of that to change my life. And when I graduated from university, I felt like I owed a debt to Youth for Christ and went into their ministry for 35 years and uh, traveled all over the world teaching and preaching and evangelizing. And God just has blessed my life. I'm married to a wonderful woman. Uh, just imagine there's a picture up there. Uh, she's, uh, she's a foreigner in my family. She's from Ohio. And uh, we've been married for uh, 55 years. And we have three children. My oldest daughter, Matt's already introduced you to her. My second daughter, Michelle, is in Burma, in uh, Myanmar. She's teaching third grade at an international school there and is having a, an incredible opportunity to interact uh, with those children in the third grade uh, and to be able to share with them her heart and her love for Jesus to all these international students who are, are coming to that school. It's all taught in English and uh, the doors are open to talk about anything. And then I have a son who lives in Idaho Springs, and he works for the county government. He's in IT, like all young boys get into uh, these days, it seems like. But anyway, uh, my, uh, my oldest daughter has uh, four children. Uh, my second uh, daughter has two children, and my son has uh, two children. Or, I'm sorry, three children, but I only have two grandsons. And uh, one in Matt's family and one in my son's family. But I also have a great-granddaughter, and life is just beautiful. We are enjoying the blessing of the Lord. But my whole life has been involved and engaged in ministry all over the world, and uh, Matt told you that a few years ago, uh, what we were doing began not to make as much sense as we thought it did. We were very, very successful in ministry, in evangelism, in reaching uh, boys and girls and young men and women and sharing Christ with them and changing their lives. But the cost of doing it was absolutely amazing. And I want to tell you one little story about our past uh, ministry a few years ago. In uh, December 26 of 2004, a tsunami came roaring across uh, from Indonesia all the way and hit the eastern shore of India. And 250,000 people were killed, they estimate, in about 13 seconds. It was almost like an atomic bomb going off. The wave was 30 feet high in some places, 40 feet high in others when it hit the shoreline. And it just crushed and moved everything for about four or 500 miles all down the east coast of India. 
And then when the wave receded, it sucked out all the debris of the buildings and people and pushed them out into the ocean. Well, that was on December the 26th. About 11 days later, Matt and I were standing on the sandy shores of where one of those Indian villages had been. There was nothing there. Not a tree, not a stick of wood, not a person, nothing. That village was well known in the past. It had been a Hindu village that was very fervent about their belief in Hinduism. They worshipped a sea goddess, and they were very proud of that. And as you may know, there are thousands and thousands of Hindu Indian gods and goddesses in their religion. In fact, you could worship a different one for 20 years and never replicate. They had driven Christianity's representatives out of their village every time they visited. And I personally knew one man who had tried when he was a seminary student in India to go to this village because he was sure he could break through, but he was wrong. And his friends went with him, and they were wrong. And no one seemed to be able to penetrate with the gospel there. And Matt and I were standing where this village had been. And slowly a few people came, and uh, we wondered whether we could have the opportunity to talk with them a little bit. And uh, our friends who had invited us there for the past uh, told us that the, the village was sort of impenetrable. But as we sat on the beach, we asked the village leaders who came around us if we could help them, even though we were Christians. And after a great deal of discussion and debate in a language I couldn't even begin to understand, you know, there's 246 letters in the uh, Indian language there. And uh, so uh, it's very complicated, but very noisy and very agitated and very fervent. And we thought, you know, we're not going to get anywhere. And finally they said, well, uh, yeah, I guess it'll be all right. We, ha- we have nothing. We have no village. We have no place to live. We have no cooking utensils. We have nothing, no store, no hospital, no school. Everything is gone. Miles and miles of sand and nothing else there. So we initially started a feeding program. And uh, we trucked in food and water and uh, fed the villagers uh, two meals a day. And that went on for several months. And uh, still no other government agency or Hindu uh, religious people or uh, no other society came to that village to give them help. We were the only ones. We built 294 one-room huts or houses out of cinder block. Finally, we wanted to withdraw our aid because it was very, very expensive, and it wasn't really what our ministry was all about. And so we we met with the leaders, and we we told them that uh, we'd still be willing to continue to work with the children in that community and feed them. In fact, we'd even start a learning center since the school had disappeared, and uh, we would, we would uh, work with them every day. But you need to know that we are Christians. 
This is the second time we were very, very plain with the village leaders telling them that. And after a great deal of discussion, it went on for 45 minutes or longer. I have no idea. I can't quite recall. But it was awful because we were sitting there in the hot sun. And while they were arguing and, and whatever they were saying between themselves, finally the village chief stood up and he told us that uh, it would be okay, but on one condition. We could work with the children. We could feed the children. We could edu- help educate the children in our learning center. But we were prohibited from speaking with any adult. Well, you know what happens? Children, uh, they begin to learn Bible songs and uh, Bible stories. And we even taught them how to pray and, and explain what prayer is all about. And, of course, they had to go home and tell mom. And... Uh, And there were a lot of questions from parents, but we could not talk with them. So we invited another organization to come in, Indian people, to meet with these Indian people and explain to them or to answer their questions about what they were learning from the children about who we were. Well, that went on for a while. Finally, a small small group was formed by people who wanted to come back every week and learn more and learn more. And then sort of a church was started, and then a couple of years later a building was built, and now there are over 300 people attending church in that little village where nobody could go with any success. Now, we took that same model and went to 11 different villages down that east coast of India and did the same thing, trying to win the right to be heard, to be able to win some friends and trust, and to be able to share with them the gospel in a simple way with children who did the rest of the evangelization themselves. And there are now a dozen churches down that stretch of India that in over 2,000 years of history never had a single gospel witness. And so that's kind of the basis of what Child Development International is all about today. Except that we want not to bring our people that we hire and train and send there, but to find village people that we can train and help And have them do the job without us having to pay them, without us having to spend all the money to build their churches or whatever. And Matt's going to explain to you how that happens. And that's the real secret about Child Development International. Matt? Thanks, Ernie. All right. Well, thank you, Ernie. Um, We just praise God. Um, We are not worthy, we are not special. we were just trying to be obedient and love people, and uh, God showed us the fruit of that work, and we just tried to go into the future with, can we use that intentionally, that concept of connecting with the unreached through children? And uh, so we launched Child Development International, and we asked him to show us where to go to work and how to do this. And he said, the first thing, Matt, you need to do is calm down. 
Don't get all excited. Don't put a business plan together. Which is anti everything I've been taught. He said, uh, go do your research and meet people. Go where I send you and learn what's happening on the ground and kind of validate what you've learned over the years and from that slowly put together some training that can be replicated and can scale so we could train more people. Ernie and I can't be in every village all over the planet. That's for sure. Um, and so we're in the phase right now of doing what I would call ministry while we're learning. So we're put together training, and every time we go and teach, we do more learning, we update our training, so we're in that pilot stage, if you will, okay? So today you'll learn a little bit about our pilot stage. Um, one thing God showed us was that the pastors, evangelists, church planners, they need training on how to make friends. All right, Pastor Joseph in Vietnam, the guys and gals that were working with children in the Indian village. These folks might have some seminary or Bible school training, but what they lack is how to connect once they get to the village. Um, another thing God showed us was how to use ch global child development skills as the bridge. Ernie shared a little bit about how that works. And the third thing God had been showing us through our research is that the opportunity is so large, so many people, so many places, the unreached groups, the ends of the earth, that as Ernie mentioned, we can't connect it to being dependent on outside resources. How many of you heard about this word sustainable in terms of missions? Yeah? Yeah, there's many different definitions these days of what that means. And, uh, you know, one concept could be, well, we'll go overseas, we'll help the community start a business. That business can generate money, and from that money can pay the pastors or pay for the ministry, right? That could be a version of sustainable development. And I have to say that we've worked globally enough to know that the minute someone is not sitting on top of that business, watching after every little detail, it's going to fall apart. And when it falls apart, what's going to happen to the ministry? There's no more funding or whatever. It could fall apart. So is that solution sustainable or not? Not really. It is in the one sense. But I'm trying to go past the fact that I know that if the indigenous people, the local people, don't come up with the idea themselves, aren't motivated to make the commitment to do the work and have some of their own ideas in it, the probability of it being successful for the long haul is very low. The probability of it failing is very high. Are there any small business owners in here? Yeah? Yes. Um, if you have children... Uh, I grew up in a small business family. My dad's hope was that one of us would take over the business. You know, why not? It's family business. But I have to say that one of the hardest things to do in America where we have the same language, we're from the same family, is to succeed generationally, handing down our businesses. Right? That's a difficult thing for many small business owners. Well, imagine a missionary going to a community, starting up a program that was their idea, and trying to hand it over to the indigenous people to run with it. What do you think the success factor? Different language, different concept, different initiatives. The probability of failure is very high. 
So when I say God showed us, there's an opportunity so large out there, if we were to use reaching children as a tool, we need to do it using assets that are already in the village. We need to come into these villages and encourage the community to want to change to help their kids, to set their own goals and objectives, and slowly encourage them to have success and using their resources versus becoming dependent immediately on outside resources. So we start with zero dependency in mind when we train our pastors to use child development techniques to make friends. So as a result, we put together uh, this slide here just to show where Child Development International fits. All right, so at the bottom here, we've got evangelists, missionaries, church planters, and the step one is to build relationship and trust. How do you do that? And once you have that, you go to, you know, prayer, Bible study, that kind of thing. And from that, hopefully, you have a church where you can do ongoing discipleship. And where Child Development International fits is we created a training curriculum called Village Development Framework. It's there on the left. And it's designed to create number one, to create relationship, to build trust, to love your neighbor, so you can get to step two a whole lot quicker. So a lot of our training, that's where, that's where we're at. All right, so I'll share a little bit about what our training is, is like. So you're like, what are you talking about? What do you really do besides fly? Very long flights and little tiny seats. <clears throat> That's another story. Okay. So succinctly said, our mission is to train and mobilize communities to develop their own children using their own resources. I have under the radar up there, you don't see a lot about the Christian work in the mission statement. And the reason is, if we're going to a country or a community that is anti-Christian or not really open to the gospel, do we want to come in with our Christian banner like this and be thrown out? No. Because we want to help kids and we think helping kids can be the bridge to bringing the gospel, we could focus on areas of developing the kids from a non-spiritual perspective. We could focus on their education. That could create relationship and trust as you help with the kids' education. We could focus on health. Same idea. Now, because who we're training is the key. So the people we are training are indigenous Christian workers. They are being trained on Bible and they want to share the gospel. So we allow them to bring the Christian part. That's their training. That's who they are. That's what they represent. They're either legal or not legal. That's not our concern. They're the Christian that wants to bring the gospel. But we are training them to be the trainer, if you will, to go to the village to teach the, the community how to help their kids. This is super important because <clears throat> as they go through our training, these are just the modules up there. And the funny script is Burmese, by the way. I just left it in there so you could enjoy the fact that I have no idea what was translated. Not even a clue. Hopefully it's correct. Um, <clears throat> but these guys and gals that we're training, um, we teach them to show up at a community and we actually role play. And we're like, if you go see the village chief, and the chief says, what are you doing in my village? 
What's your answer? You've got to remember the scenario. Most of these villages, they're not welcoming of the gospel. Right? So what's your answer? It could be anything. I mean, they could say, we're here to convert you, you know, but that doesn't work so well for most of them. So part of our training is to get them to role play and say, hey, I have a certification in village development framework that Child Development International created. And as a coordinator, I have skills to help you, if you're interested, improve the health of your kids, help them go further in school, and even a concern for their safety, like child labor, child trafficking, and violent abuse issues. I have training in that, and if you care for your kids and you want to help your kids grow, I'm available. I am a Christian, and part of my faith is to love my neighbor. And so this training is a way that I can just exercise my faith. Are you interested? Do you want to know more? And most communities will have this discussion in a group, by the way. It'll be like the chief or the headman or mayor, whatever you want to call him, and the headmaster of the school. Anybody who's a leader would probably be sitting around uh, the fire or sitting under this thing to have this conversation with you. And most communities want to help their kids, just like here. And so that's the entry point to bring peace and to begin to work together. So we train them on how to have that discussion, for example. So here these guys are at the beginning of our training. And these are pastors. And what we find is some of the people we train have been a pastor for 30 years and want to grow their church and their community. It's stagnant. It's not growing. There's 10 people after 30 years. Others might be a young or a person, maybe they're 30 or 20, doesn't matter, and they're going out to a brand new mission field and there's no church. And we get them to sit around and talk about subjects. Like one of them is, what are the roadblocks that you see bringing the gospel to this community? In other words, we haven't told them anything yet. Really, our training style is not to come in and tell them we have the solution. Our training style is really help them see the problem that they already know about, but they haven't thought about it, articulate it, come up with ideas on how they would solve the problem. And as we're brainstorming, we might be able to provide some help, but generally they know the answers if they stop and think and have somebody help them critically think through it. So this is one of the exercises. And I apologize for this screen. You may not be able to read it, but we do a lot of whiteboarding. So we have them break up into groups they write down their challenges, and then one representative would share per group, and then we write down the top three challenges from all the groups, if you will. I've circled three of those. The first one was religious-extremist arrest. So this is from these pastors. And so you heard Ernie and I talk about this, but this is straight from our training. It is a real problem. It hit the number one on their list. Another problem and challenge that they face is that they don't have many resources. They said they're poor. And that creates a problem for transportation and access to these remote locations. That's fair. The third one I circled was not friendly. There's less trust. And then one of the subpoints down at the bottom, it says, afraid of Buddhist majority attack. So this is top of mind as they're trying to come up with what are their roadblocks for bringing the gospel. And then another exercise we had to help with them, you'll break them up into groups again, is to talk about their values, for example. 
so they could think about, as a Christian community, what do they value? So on the right side, they kind of listed what Christians value. And I said, on the other side, on the left side, what is everybody, non-Christian, Christian, doesn't matter what tribe you're from, what's common that you all value? And our premise for doing the exercise is, if you can connect with people in these villages on something that matters to all of us, it's a way to make friends, right? And so naturally, they listed these out. They didn't know where I was going with it. But I found it quite interesting. I've circled a couple items on here, and I'll highlight them for you so you can better see them. One was love, was one of the common values. Another was health of their kids. Another one was education of their kids. And another one was justice. And so it was amazing for most of these pastors, this was one of the first times that they sat down and started to think besides how do I share the gospel of Matthew, how do I connect with the community? And they began to see we have things in common. And right off the bat, education, health, and justice are the three pillars of Child Development International. We use different words. We use healthy, safe, and educated. On the left there are the non-Christian aspects of developing a child. It's, it's colored blue, and under the blue, we want the community to be responsible for paying for it, because why? We want them to be able to afford it, not just for this week, but forever. So as they begin to improve different aspects of their children's health, education, and safety, it's sustainable. There's zero dependency on foreign aid from the very beginning, and they take baby steps to improve, but they own it and are responsible. On the right is the Christian aspect, and that pastor we're training, this is their responsibility. When it's appropriate, they introduce prayer. Ernie mentioned when we were sitting around the the meeting in India with the village chief and the other people, we mentioned we're Christian. So it was appropriate for us to mention that early on. And then over time, when we met the kids together, we taught them how to pray. And then over time, we taught them more about the Bible. So as it's more appropriate, we let the Christian worker we're training handle um, when it's appropriate to bring the gospel message. But they are responsible. But then there's the orange part there that it all sits on. And our Christian worker that we're training is responsible for mobilizing the community to take the actions with the kids and their responsibility for the Christian work. Does this make sense? How much time do I have left? Okay. Hey, I'm doing pretty good. We're going to go over this. What do you see in this picture? A little girl. Shout it out so I can hear you. I'm, I can't quite hear very well. Empty plate. What? Poverty. Hunger. What? Starving. Or Harvey. <laughs> huh? Hopelessness, no opportunity, did I get that right? An opportunity, oh, I like you, 
I like all of you. So yeah, we could, we could kind of uh, dig in on this slide for quite a while, but when I'm teaching, I, I throw this slide up here. All my slides, uh, pictures and stuff, get the guys and gals to think, and they're all from their country. So this is actually a Burmese girl. Um, so they're very familiar with this picture, and they're telling me what you just shared. But I'd like to open their minds more, um, because one of the challenges when you do human development in the Christian realm is you can get caught up in just helping people physically and never sharing the gospel. It's, it's a risk. And there is a trend today that Christian ministries that started out evangelizing and helping no longer share the gospel. They're just focused on helping. And I believe that for most people, not all people, God can come in visions and, and, and tell you exactly who he is with no human intervention. Um, but generally more, the majority, they need to hear. And Scripture says, how can they hear if nobody says it? And so I want to help them see that don't focus in on child development and get all caught up in helping them with their health and their education. Very important to get the community to, to do it. But the most important thing is to restore the broken relationship that man has with God. Sin entered the world. That broke our relationship with God. Not only did it break our relationship with God, it broke our relationship with our fellow man, between Adam and Eve, between Adam and other people. And it even broke our relationship with the earth. Right? Creation was affected. Um, farming was affected in a huge way. And so um, this exercise, I think, is a very valuable point for them to go, okay, yeah, I need to see past material poverty and I need to always be thinking about spiritual poverty. We need to be prepared and ready through the salvation of Jesus Christ, saving us from our sins. We need to restore the relationship. Once we've restored relationships, material poverty alleviation can be done sustainably, long term. What I see in this picture is if the, those who have we're working in relationship with the have-nots, this child wouldn't look like that. It's not that we'll all become equal. There will be the poor, and there will be the unpoor. But are we in relationship with one another to help one another? Right? The government should have been involved in this. All the resources around them should be involved, but nobody's involved because there's broken relationships. So at the end of the day, one of the most important things to do when you want to help people with material poverty is to actually look at the broken relationships around them and begin to try to restore them. And without restoration between you and our Father in heaven, it's very difficult to make long-term um, poverty alleviation. Hey, that's my, my stop. I'm just going to dismiss that. <clears throat> okay, real quick. Um, this is the typical situation that we've discovered in a village. If you kind of wonder why these people struggle with health and education, want to send their kids off to work before they go to school and then really never go to school, they just do child labor, or even get sucked into selling their children, um, there's a problem. And it is that on this screen here, you see that the parents are working 
for themselves to help their kids with their health and education and safety. The chief's worried about safety. The school's only worried about school. The health worker is in their own little silo worried about health. But when you don't have much resource, you need to work together. But they're working independently. And so what we're trying to do is we teach these pastors to be the coordinator. I mentioned they go into the community and challenge the community. Do you want to help your kids grow in health and safety and education? Yes, we do. One of the first things they need to do is organize themselves, make a plan with goals, and help the community to do the work. This is an example of what the plan would look like. Very simple. At the top, they make a multi-year goal. We call it an outcome, the real change they want to achieve. And then it's supported by a couple goals. And then the red columns are daily activities. What do you do differently every day? Because at the root of what we're doing is changing behavior. Um, anybody been on a diet? I have. And my doctor says, your cholesterol is high. You need to change your ways. Do I agree with him? Well, do I believe him, I guess, first? Yeah, I believe him. Do I agree with him? Yeah, kind of. But am I committed to doing the behavioral change that's necessary to change my diet and exercise? And this is the same problem. We can go into communities. The community can say, yes, I want my child to go past fourth grade. You see, for a lot of the villages we work in in Myanmar, primary school ends at fourth grade, then it picks up middle school. To go to middle school, you've got to go maybe 15, 20 minutes or a half hour away from your village, which is a safety concern for a lot of parents to have their little kiddos go that far away. So they stop at fourth grade. So the village might say, yeah, we want our kids to make it through eighth grade. Great. We put a plan together. We say, well, one thing is we want the teachers to show up every day. We want the kids to show up every day. We've got to improve their health by doing a hand-washing routine. We need to put a hand-washing station in there at every school and, and in every house, and the community's all excited. But what they don't do and they forget is to get the commitment. So at the bottom of this plan is gray. It's, it's the value. What value needs to change, needs to be a part of the plan? In Myanmar, about 26% of men that live in the rural area value education over work for their children. 26% value education. So that means, what's the math there? 74% don't. So here they are. You can just see this. We're all in a group up here. I agree with the doctor. I heard you. Education's important. But in here, I don't agree with you. I value my kid going to work to contribute to the household income more than I do education. So we could put a great plan together, but at the end of the day, this plan also needs to address changing human behavior, changing the core values, so that at the end of the day, the plan actually gets done. Does that make sense? One of our biggest challenges is to make this happen. Um, in fact, many large and small Nonprofits that do global human development work or even development work here in communities in America don't tackle this. They have the funding, they have the idea, and they have the program. 
But if they wonder why change doesn't come from it, long-term change, is because at the end of the day, they never got down to the human behavioral change. What's at the core? And we've been doing ministry long enough. We've seen a lot of fruit. But we know the reality is you could just spend money and money and money and money and not get the results because you did the easy work. You checked the boxes. So many kids were fed. So many whatever was done. But at the end of the day, was their heart change? Was their real behavioral change? And we're committed to getting the communities for the long haul. If they're going to be sustainable and real change happens, we need to address real problems. So this kind of work does not take one afternoon, nor does it take one year. This kind of work will take many, many years. Um, and we're committed to it. We're committed to the long haul to doing it right. Now here's an example. I expect a, we'll have a quiz later on this. Um, but including with a, with a plan and our training, we give them cheat sheets. So what's the top five things you can do with very little money or resources in the area of health that have a huge result? Uh, one example that's on this cheat sheet is deworming children. Have you heard of people can have worms? through bacteria, et cetera. Well, it's pretty common where we work in these places that are remote. And studies have been done about 40% of what a child eats um, is lost in the nutritional value because they have worms. So about 40% is lost for about a dollar or less a year if you deworm the child properly. Um, and that's within these poor people's ability. They can pay for that and get the medicine they get back 365 days of that 40% of food value. 365 days of eating, you get 40% of what you're eating nutritionally back for a dollar. That's pretty good. So there's a lot of things you can do that really scales pretty well if you change your behavior and have some commitment to it. Um, this year we trained three official groups uh, as a part of our piloting. This was uh, in Myanmar in March, and this group is through a partnership with Youth for Christ International. These guys go out and do evangelism and try to mobilize the youth people in these remote communities, and so they wanted to use our training to help bridge uh, into the entire community. This particular group is of uh, seminary students, really Bible school. Most of them have between an 8th grade and 10th grade education. And uh, this particular seminary um, just tries to encourage their passion to go evangelize and get them up to speed with Bible knowledge and reading and writing. And then we've come along now and given them these tools that they can use to bring back to their villages on how to make friends to share the gospel. And then this is a subgroup of a large Baptist denomination that we just trained in September and I share these pictures with you because these men and women really need your prayers. And I wanted you to have a visual um, that they're very real people. Um, they're just like you and I. And there's a common aspect to their ministry. Um, it takes intentional effort. And so if you didn't pick up on anything today, um, I'd like you to take this home with you in your mind. Here we've got professional people. They're pastors, evangelists. But they do have little training, but it's their official role. And what have we been talking about this whole time? 
training them on how to make friends, how to do it, how to connect in a community. It's intentional, right? They can't go in and just sit in their hut and hope that everybody's going to come knock on their door when no one trusts them. They have to be intentional in creating a plan and coming up with ideas. And I was thinking about this, and I thought, boy, that's the same for us, right? Um, you know, I had put up here, what about you? But I was really like, what about me in my own community? Am I being intentional, um, or am I just kind of sitting in my hut, hoping that, you know, when the Lord tells me to talk to so-and-so, I'll be obedient? Or should perhaps I be intentional and think about who it is I need to connect with and how can I build that relationship? And in today's society, I'm not sure what it's like in your community, but I know in many communities throughout the United States, we are the minority these days. People don't want to talk about Christianity. You're fearful at work. You might lose your job or if you're a teacher. And I'm like, boy, that's not much different than, than some of these pastors going to these unreached groups. And I thought, maybe we can be more intentional like them to create relationships. And through the relationship, more trust is built. And now your neighbor or your coworker or whoever might be more open to hearing the gospel because they trust you. So with that, I'd like to just uh, give God the glory and close us in prayer. Uh, Lord, thank you for this time we spent together. Thanks for showing us how you're moving and working throughout the world. And I pray, Father, that You'd give us a heart, a commitment, the tenacity we need to go to the ends of the earth. And uh, we praise you for what you've done and what you're doing around the world and right here. And I ask you to give us the strength spiritually, the confidence and the boldness, and even more importantly, the love for our fellow citizens right here that don't know you as Savior put in our minds and our hearts a commitment to be intentional, to reach our own family members that may not know you or the people in our community. Father, we love you, and we just give you praise and glory for all you've done and for Jesus Christ. And it is his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Matt and Ernie. I could have some of the... Guys, come forward to receive the offering. Again, just make out your check for VCC. Everything that we receive will go to them. And I want to pray over that first, and I just want to share a thought or two. Let's, let's just pray over the offering. Father, we thank you that out of the abundance that you bless us with, and out of the abundance of our hearts, we can give to be a part of ministries like this. So, Father, we thank you for all that you bless us with. Father, we thank you that you... Bless and you honor generosity. And I pray, Lord, that we are good stewards of everything that you give us and bless us with. And we are look with joy to being able to invest in ministries that are advancing the kingdom around the world in places we'll never go. We just give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.